table is set for another Literary Roundtable, where we serve you the perfect pairing of author and expert. No book or subject is off limits at the only place on the net where you can join in the discussion and ask our guests any questions you like. So pull up a chair and join the discussion. Welcome to the Literary Roundtable. I'd like to welcome everyone to part four of our five-part series on the Literary Roundtable. We're calling A House United, Understanding America and Each Other. The purpose of this series is to discuss the many reasons why our country has become so divided and how we might begin the process of healing and bringing our country back together again. Once again, joining us today is author Antonio Elmali. He is the author of the Civil War and Reconstruction novel, The Ones They Left Behind, which is a powerful story about the journey one Civil War veteran takes to heal a divided nation. It is set in post-Civil War America and contains many parallels between America during Reconstruction and America today. And we've been discussing many of these parallels throughout this series, and we'll continue those discussions in the coming hour. He's also the author of A House United, and you can find out more about Antonio and his books at antoniomali.com. Also joining the roundtable today is veteran journalist Joe Williams. He's a senior editor with U.S. News, where he covers the Supreme Court and national politics. He is the former White House correspondent for Politico and was the deputy chief of the Boston Globe's Washington Bureau, where he supervised coverage of the Bush and Obama administrations. His Twitter handle is at VerbDC. Antonio, welcome back. Thank you. And Joe, thank you for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. In our earlier discussions on the Literary Roundtable with uh, John Blake of CNN and Dr. Victor Hansen and Jim Campbell, we discussed many of the parallels between America during the Civil War and America today. And we touched on topics of race, religion, income inequality, polarization, among many other topics. And today we're going to continue our focus on the how and why we are so polarized today. Uh, Joe, I'm going to begin with you. And Antonio, feel free to jump in at any time, as you know. Joe, you wrote a great article for U.S. News just prior to the election that showcased some extremely interesting, if not a little scary, uh, polling data. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on some of the results from those polls that you mentioned in your article. Quoting from your article, you wrote, A sizable number of Americans, particularly evangelical Protestants, believe the nation's best days came during the era of Elvis, the Cold War, and legal segregation. It's, it's really fascinating. One of the things that, that came out of that is that there's this overwhelming nostalgia. Uh, they're called nostalgia voters, in fact, for the way things were. Uh, even if the way things were weren't always the way things really were, and the way things really were weren't all that great for folks who were on the margins at that point in society. I mean, people are, are, have a yearning for stability in uncertain times, and I think that's what a lot of that those poll results led to. I mean, we have economic upheaval, we have security concerns, we have wars fighting overseas that we don't know when or if they'll ever end, and an adversary that nobody can really see and put a uniform on. So all that kind of, those, those sorts of upheavals and changes, and, and even on the domestic front, we have, we have uh, changing in who gets to be defined as a man or a woman and what bathroom they get to use. And that leads a lot of people to have, have this sort of unsettled feeling. And what they want is what they imagine to be the best years of the nation. 
which I've mentioned, weren't always necessarily that great for, for, for various groups. But certainly it's something that they believe in, they can cling to, and in a lot of ways it helps explain the phenomenon of Donald Trump. So do you think this is you, – you spoke about this being nostalgic. Uh, I've been talking to a lot of my friends during this election cycle, and it seems to me that the far right in particular is scared to death of losing the country that they think this is, just well, like and to I think your that's... point – yeah, and I think I think that sorry for the I think you're absolutely right. You put your finger on something that a lot of political analysts have told me over the course of last year's election and even up to current times that there is this sense of losing power, of losing control, of losing primacy as I mean to, to stereotype it as white men in society who helped found this country, who built a lot of this country, who feel responsible for this country, but also don't really. You know, they're not really all that into, the, into all that sharing thing. I mean, they're not really into sharing a whole lot of that power because uh, it feels to them like a zero-sum game. Like if, if there are games made by other groups, then their group loses. And because their group feels so contracting and so isolating, and statistically, in fact, that part of it is, is, is definitely provable, their, white Americans are on pace to become a minority by the mid-2020s. So... Part of that fear is legitimate, but I also think a lot of it is overhyped might be a, wor a word for it. I'm, I'm struggling for the right word, but basically that it's, it's not as serious as you think. I mean, gains for one group did not necessarily mean uh, losses for another, and this country was founded on pluralism and pluralistic society, and there are a lot of good things that can come out of, of, of power sharing and learning to live in harmony with other groups. Well, it seems to me that it's almost an attitude of our guys went through World War One and World War Two. We fought for this country. We built this country, and now we have to give it away to somebody else. Yeah, but that's a false premise. I mean, anybody who has studied history would know that that's a false premise. You're not giving away the country. You are just acknowledging some democratic realities. I mean, look, the country was founded by European immigrants, right? And, you know, they were settlers, and they took land from Native Americans, and then – they brought over some folks from Africa to help them with the work and help them build the country. And after a lot of protests, a lot of tumult, a lot of upheaval, and, and designed to make sure that the founders of this country kept their promise that everybody who was born in this country is equal, you had a dynamic explosion of growth in the 40s, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, where this nation basically became who, they, who we think we are. We became a nation of, of, of dynamism, a nation of the middle class a nation of a highly educated population that had access to, to this education for free. That wasn't a bad thing. And as more, more marginalized groups became a part of this nation, you saw great innovation. I mean, you, you, you know, an African-American developed technology that enabled a steam engine to, to run faster than it ever had before. Booker T. Washington invented many uses for agri agricultural products. You have great strides being made by, by academics, by inventors, by entrepreneurs, of all races and all colors. So it wasn't just the fact that uh, the whites were, were, had created this country and had advanced it and moved it forward and the rest of, of us were holding them back. It was about everyone contributing to make this nation as great as it possibly can be. And that still can be the case if only people would kind of recognize that level of possibility and allow it to happen. Antonio, it seems to me that there's, there is a parallel between that type of thinking in the South in particular with the plantation owners and slavery, that they felt that they were losing their way of life. Well, there's no question they were. It was a direct threat. I think the irony is that as powerfully as they were fighting to keep an entrenched system, economic system in place, 
they were making they couldn't really argue that openly with with the vast majority of poor white farmers that made up you know the large you know the largest sector of the southern population because most of those folks didn't own slaves didn't have a relationship with the institution of slavery they were just growing food to support their families so they had to couch the argument in, in terms of a state's rights versus federal government you know well if we could have if the 13 colonies could have bounced out of the empire why can't this, why don't the states have the same right to do that and that played much more i think positively to to that group of poor ignorant white farmers who uh, couldn't relate to the slavery issue but they sure could relate to the idea of a of a big nasty federal government taking away their ability to for what they thought was self-determination and uh you know, I think that the, and, and, the legacy of displaced white anger goes back to uh, well before the Civil War. The whole fight over slavery involved a plantation class that was deeply entrenched in protecting its system of of uh, economic superiority. And in fact, they built uh, slavery built this country in a lot of ways. It created, you know, the economic engine for our growth. Um, and that's a sad legacy and one that I don't think people really want to take a look at, especially when you look at the chain of economic transactions in the chain of slavery uh, that slavery created, everything from the, the ship owners bringing slaves over to the railroads, the, uh, you know, shipping the cotton up to the north to the textile uh, owners, you know, making them, you know, making the cloth and then exporting it. And then underneath it all, the system of finance, which, you know, was busy bankrolling every step of those of those different processes. So I think on a, in a lot of levels the whole idea of slavery didn't of losing slavery didn't go well to folks who were, you know, benefiting from it, but in some conditions they couldn't just come out and say that because it would have tarred them as being, you know, the abolitionists would have been on their case and dancing on their heads and that would have been a whole other a whole other thing. So, but I think that there's a level of of this, you know, to to your point about uh, what these folks wish they what are they wishing for you know i've thought about that a lot you know what what did they experience in their lifetimes that would resemble a way of life that that is that is disappearing and you know certainly in uh, 50 years i don't think that's that way of life has has been has uh, we've experienced it because there's just been so civil so much civil and social and economic upheaval um, so I think the well, whole issue of upheaval and, and people wishing for something that actually never happened is is part of the <laughs> part of the problem because they're wishing for something that really never in his in our history never really uh, got down to uh, to the general level. Let's put it that way. Well, and that's the thing, Antonio. I mean, you I heard heard the titles of your book. Many people, in a lot of ways, are calling the election of Trump the third Reconstruction. And in you know, what you just described sounds like that description is pretty accurate. Social, economic upheaval, kind of a threatened lifestyle that really didn't exist. But there also was something interesting that you said that I wanted to know more about. And you talked about the ignorant white uh, sharecroppers. Well, well, some were sharecroppers, but let's say subsistence farmers, to be you know to put a put a positive face on it, that they felt threatened by slavery because the the capitalists had basically decided that in this caste system they needed an ally, and that ally was going to be the poor white and the, the wedge used to divide them from the poor African-American, the poor black uh, free slaves or slaves who were still enslaved, was the fact that you're better than they are. 
at, at bottom line, you're better than they are, so come join with us because we all look alike, even though our economic interests are vastly different. Tell me what you think about that. I mean, do you think that that's fairly an accurate portrayal, or do you think that, that there are some nuances here that don't quite match up as well as they might have in, say, 17, you know, 1895 or 1894? Well, I, you know, I, I actually feel that there was a larger threat going on, uh, at least as far as Southerners were concerned, and that was the fact that the Northern economy was was trans, uh, transitioning to much more of an industrialized, mechanized economy, whereas the South had been had stayed mired in not just agrarian culture, but agrarian, but also outmoded ways of of growing things. I mean, when I read about the fact that tobacco and cotton, you know, just tears the hell out of out of the soil, and you have to really have some enlightened ideas about how to rotate crops before you keep planting and planting and planting. I think it was de Tocqueville described traveling in Virginia and North Carolina as early as 1830, 1830s saying he described a wasteland of erosion, that the land had just been farmed and farmed and farmed, and the planters were just busy, you know, reaping every single ounce of profit that they could out of, an, of a diminishing resource, which was the land. So I think that well, there was a deeper unease going on, which was the South was getting lapped by the, this modernizing, that, you know, rapidly modernizing northern economy, and the planters well knew that. Here you have another parallel with, with what's going on today, because a lot of people are talking about, and you heard Trump famously state during his campaign, that he was going to bring manufacturing back, that he's going to put coal miners back to work, and that uh, he's repatriating jobs you know, manufacturing jobs from overseas that haven't been in existence in the U.S. in about 15 or 20 years. The problem there is somewhat similar in that it's not necessarily the fact that the corporations are shipping jobs overseas because they are. But in addition to corporations shipping jobs overseas, you're never going to have that kind of manufacturing boom in the United States again because of modernization, because of technology, because you can't undo the 21st century. And that kind of instability is another kind of log on the, the populist fire, but it's also one that can't really be extracted. You can't go back to, you know, just as the farmers could not go back to planting only cotton or go towards, you know, resist going towards industrialization because the North is lapping them, you have the same thing with technology. And a lot of discussion has been had about the, the urban elite versus the rural, honest, hard, good, hardworking folk who simply want to make a job, who simply want a job that they can make a decent wage, but they don't need training for. During President Barack Obama's uh, tenure, he, he, made, he emphasized time and again that, hey, folks, those jobs really aren't coming back. But now you have uh, a president in the White House who insists that they are, and if you're, if you're one of those folks, who are you going to believe? You're going to believe the guy who grew up in Chicago as a community organizer or the billionaire who says he knows how to bring back jobs and that he's going to do it, and that your lives are going to be better again than they were eight, nine, ten years ago. There's another factor here, which I think you know we haven't really touched on, is that it's the fact that not just the people who desperately needed to be retrained so that they can make a transition from a um, I mean, things that they they can make to ideas, you know, to an idea or a, you know a, a communication-based economy. We have, as a society, been woefully negligent in just planning for that transition. I'm not sure why, but the same ignorance that pervaded the inability of the South to, to adjust to modern, more modern farming methods, methods, forget about, you know, migrating to manufacturing, but just better 
and more renewable and sustainable farming methods was just completely off the off the table. That same level of ignorance and blindness is you know is operating 160 years ago when we're supposed to be smarter and more well educated, but we didn't have, we didn't plan for any of this. I mean, as far as I can tell, there's no no aggressive plan to anticipate the disruption in the workforce as jobs disappear. Certain kinds of jobs disappeared, and others were harder to get, and and more folks from other from other countries were willing to step into that void. So it's that persistent level of ignorance that I think still also drives this wishful idea of a past that never was. I guess it all kind of points to, on some level, we're just not in reality about a lot of this stuff. My argument is that it really drops down to an, uh, a very, very poor understanding of our history, of where we've been, what we've been through, what we haven't faced, and kicked it you know, under the rug for another generation and then another generation to solve. And those, uh, you know, we've run out of rug. You know, the, you know, it, it's uh, in this global economy. There's no, there's no margin. You know, you you get it right, and you get it, you get on top of stuff, or you're going to get swallowed by uh, other countries that have a work ethic that uh, we would love to have. Well, I was wondering why the rug was so lumpy. That explained it. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you, you also, you also said two things. I mean, if I mean, you also said two things that kind of pricked my ears up. I mean, the first is. You talk about education, right? And then you talk about the North. And when you say North, I, I, I see the equal signs and the word elite, um, because that was another very large factor. Because trying to get folks on board with this, you have to trust somebody who knows better. But then there's this whole notion that uh, the pointy-headed elitists are the ones who ruined your life in the first place, and that you can't trust somebody from New York City to come down to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and tell them what's best for them. And by the same token, you have very, a lot of, I mean, one of the, one of my side gigs is I, I cover education stories. And so I've done over the last three or four years stories about how education is struggling to transition and prepare people for the 21st century. Uh, we have, you know, right now in the OECD, uh, like the Organization of Economic Development, and I've gotten, the, I've gotten the acronym wrong, but basically it's a world organization <laughs> yeah. that, that studies that studies globalization and studies education and how societies are advancing. Of the last rankings, the last rankings that I wrote about in 2015, the U.S. was roughly middle of the pack, and that was something that a lot of people pointed to is the reason why our tech sector is lagging behind other tech sectors in the world. Now, sure, we're, we're the home of innovation. We have a lot of smart people in Silicon Valley who are inventing who are inventing stuff and exporting it out to the world. But a lot of those hands-on people who have to actually do the nuts and bolts or programming code or coming up with, with different algorithms and such, they're coming from overseas because the United States is not producing nearly as many computer engineers, software designers, anybody in the STEM field. We're far behind in producing them compared to our European and Asian counterparts. But to try to get that implemented in schools is a really tough sell, uh, mainly because and this kind of goes, I apologize for being all over the place, but this kind of goes back to the notion of a pluralistic society, that we have different regions, we have different people who have different interests. The urban folks kind of get it. The rural folks might not necessarily. And, and, and I guess the large question is, the big overarching question is, how did they get those farmers to listen to uh, your extension agent who might have gone to college and learned about all this new technology and learned new ways of doing things? How do you get folks who are stuck in those ways and who have very set opinions and ideas about how their life should be, how do you get them to adapt? Because that, to me, seems to be the biggest issue here. 
You have the divide between city and urban, or rather rural and urban, and those trains simply aren't meeting these days. I think you have to start by being sensitive to the pain that these folks feel, that without, without being compassionate or empathic about the fact that these folks feel, and I'm using that word very, I apologize if it's a sort of a grab, grab bag you know, description, but they feel disenfranchised. Worse, they're now, I think, because there's so much rage uh, at being disenfranchised, at not being listened to or being forgotten, ignorance is now, you know, they're proud of ignorance. You know, there's this, F, this, this value that's sprung up that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to listen to, you know, the, uh, the smart The pointy-headed, pointy-headed yeah, the liberal. Right, and, and this, it entrenches the, the adamacy, adamacy of holding on to their ignorance even worse. Um, so well, see, but I think the answer to your question is a human one. It's, it starts with listening to the pain and sh- you know, of, of people who feel dispossessed. And we may see, disagree with that, but you've got to start from some common human uh, you know, stance where you, you say, I, I understand or I see you know, how you could feel that way. I mean, it's something as simple as that. And then that has to disarm that level of antagonism and that level of, you know, rigidity that, that's so, that's, that just springs up as soon as people start to argue and, and, and want to win, want, want to win the, the point and want to, you know, and by extension dominate the other person. I mean, that's, it's a small step and I, you know, I don't, I mean, I've thought about it a lot. I, but I think it starts with, fundamental humanity and just getting, you know, putting down the notion of I'm going to prove that my points are right and more towards, geez, you've had a rough time and how did that happen? And then, you know, and then you can move to, well, what are the constructive things that we could do? Does that sound like to- totally Pollyanna-esque? <laughs> I'm a, I was a former teacher. I taught for 11 years, and I taught. I substituted in a variety of things. I taught at Cal State Long Beach, um, but I also taught at a low-income uh, high school out here in Southern California. The interesting thing and the disturbing thing that I discovered when I was teaching is I kept trying to tell the students that education is a way out. This will help you. The education is a good thing. You can get go to college. You can get a better job. And they said, my brother works at fixing cars or doing this. He's got a house, kid, this, that. We don't need this education. We don't care. We're never going to use it. Who's going to use algebra? Who's going to use history? Who's going to use that? Listen, my family has a great life. They're happy. They have They have their jobs. When you're talking about education, a, a lot of these kids, they don't see the value in it. It's well, I have to tell you, I mean, you also this, have this, the this. argument that if you're making three, four, five thousand dollars a week as a runner, you know, for the, your, your local neighborhood dealer, you know, mm-hmm. that, that just makes it even more of a remote, you know, uh, the, the calculation of what do I need to spend my time, you know, sitting, uh, you know, listening to some white guy talk about uh, stuff that I can't relate to when I can be making all this serious coin under the table and having my cars and my this and my that. So it, it, it's, it, it's even worse than just uh, apathy. There's, a, there's an economic, albeit a, a very nasty one, there's an economic motive for, for just, uh, you know, staying, staying where you are and, and, and kind of moving with the, 
with the flow of uh, of gang of gang economics, which is I think you know a, a whole other whole other thing. I, I don't, but I don't know about. I just don't know how you make it relevant to to, to people unless you start to dig into the history and, and talk about some of the uh, the darker side of our history because I think the students maybe just intuitively know that it's a bit of a snow job, you know, that it's in the, again this impulse to sweep under the rug, you know, the more unpalatable parts of our history because well we don't want to face that because that doesn't that doesn't match up with our our rhetoric of who we think we are. But see, I think that's a, that's a bit of I mean they're, they're taking a bit of an nihilistic view. Uh, especially the example of, of, of the drug dealer. And that, when I, when I hear that, I, I think about moving the camera lens back a little bit and seeing the wider picture. I mean, some of those kids may have been struggling in Long Beach, but it, it may, they may come from generations of poverty. And to them, yeah, being a mechanic is a good job. But it also gets back to two things. The first is the fact that uh, the elites are telling them something that they want to do, that they don't want to do when they've got a, at least a ready fingertip example of why they shouldn't do it because right. so and, cousin so-and-so has a good job and, you know, I, he didn't have to go to school. But you look, you take a larger view of cousin so-and-so's life and he's, he's restricted, right? And, and, and the second thing, you know, he, he, might not, he might have a house and a car, but it might not be a great house or a great car. It might be in a okay neighborhood when if he had gone to college and become an engineer, it might be an even better neighborhood. So, so, so there's that. The second thing that, that comes to mind is I have this, I had this conversation with my teenage daughter who is not, was not a big fan of school for, for various and sundry reasons, but what I told her, you know, she used to scoff at getting good grades because those were what the smart kids would do. And, and there was some of that in, in my life as an African American man, you know, that if you were going to an urban school and you were being smart, you were trying to act white. And that was detrimental because you wanted to be authentic. You wanted to keep it real. But real is real stupid in that context. But, but, but getting back to the original point on that one is that I told my daughter the thing that, that, that matters about grades is if you, get, if you get good grades, people give you things. If you do well in school, people give you things. It may be an opportunity. It may be a scholarship. It may be money. In some cases, it's a new watch or a, a $500 signing bonus. They will give you things if they show that you excel. What happens in our society, unfortunately, is if you need things, you don't get them. If you need a good school, if you need a good teacher, if you need uh, a better upgrade in facilities, unless you're unless you're in the right zip code, you will not get those things. So, in order to implant that idea into a young person, it has to start early, and it has to have some concrete examples of how things got better for somebody who worked really, really hard, right? And not just work hard, but work smart, because coming up in the next century about half of all the good jobs, all the middle-class jobs, are going to involve secondary education, post-secondary school education, either a certificate or a diploma. And that's real business. And a lot of kids are going to get left behind if they don't get that message with some degree of urgency. Do you think that starts with the parent? Where does that, where does that, that urgency then come from so that they, they, there's credibility behind it and they don't just dismiss it as just old folks you know, talking down to them. I mean, where is it? Well, teach, I'm sure it's all of it. It's the it's, teacher setting it's all, it's, certain example it's all in the classroom. It. Yeah, it's it's all of it. It's teacher setting example. It's seeing real world examples, role models. It's having a household that understands the value of that education. I mean, my 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 parents finished high school, and that's as far as they went. My dad joined the military. 
but as soon as we came along and were of age, it was drilled into us at a very early age with consequences, thou shalt get good grades. If you get good grades, you graduate high school, and you have an option and you choose not to take it, that's your business. But in order to keep from having restricted options, you will have a good education and you will have a good foundation upon which to make those decisions. Now, I, I, I'm talking a little bit faster again. I'm talking a lot because I feel like I have so many ideas I want to get out. But when I was in uh, a couple of years ago, my church went down to uh, you know, not a, like a crazy apostolic church, but like a sort of social, you know, social welfare church where we went down to Appalachia, Hayesville, North Carolina. It's like one of the most remote, remotest places I've ever been. And I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay. So we're in Hayesville. Uh, can't get any cell signal. Can't get, get, get this or that. Didn't see another black person for three and a half days. No cell, you know, no cell reception. The odd uh, rebel flag popping up. The people who we were helping were remarkably friendly and remarkably welcoming. But the thing that struck me most was how many problems they had in common with that kid you were teaching in Long Beach. I mean, you talk about empathy and, and, and embracing people who feel like they've been left behind and trying to understand their struggle. It began in a place like that. But I also think it begins in other places because the common denominators are poverty, poorly performing schools, lack of access to jobs, drug abuse. And this is in Hayesville, North Carolina. You know, the, 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 the family we were working with, the teenage daughter had dropped out and gotten pregnant. The father couldn't find work because he was addicted to drugs. And they had to rely on charity, which killed them. And I think if there's some way to either eliminate the, 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 the elitist part of it or try to find some way to, to, to wipe off the sheen that elites know better and that they're only trying to dominate you and suggest that they're trying to hurt you and bring urban and rural together to try to solve common problems, I think that's a long, that would take a giant step toward getting the country back together and getting us to where we were uh, or where people imagined what that we were in the 50s. Do you think they see that they are so far behind that they think they don't stand a chance of catching up? Well, Is I don't know. I, I don't. I don't even. I don't even know if they do. I mean, and I use the word that I hate, which is elite, because I think that education does not necessarily confirm elitism. Just as you know, lack of education doesn't confirm authenticity. I mean, you are what you right. do with your circumstances. But I don't think that they realize it because it's too far away to see, and they they can't relate because they don't interact with people who are not like them. And you know that's true of a lot of different segments of society. If you don't interact with people who aren't like you, you never get that level of understanding that uh, that uh, you were talking about, in which empathy is the first step towards understanding. You know, you have to be outside of your circumstances. You have to be curious about other parts of the world and other people. But that seems to be lacking, and we look internally. Right? We we close ranks when 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 times are uncertain. Yeah, I mean, Antonio, Antonio, talk about talk about reconstruction, man. How did we get out of that? We didn't. That's my my point is that we the things that that reconstruction revealed uh, are with us full full bore front and center now. Uh, which which are what? Well, income inequality. The, the, the I suppose the white population basically I think feeling like they've done enough. You know, they they sacrificed blood and toil to you know, for for either to free the slaves, which I think a lot of northern soldiers didn't buy at all, or they fought to keep the Union together and then realized, lo and behold, well, uh, it's not together. You know, the same wounds that, that, that ripped us up, before, you know, when the war started are still there. 
you know, you still have that entrenched ignorance and you still have that sense of a, of a disenfranchised segment of the population. You have a political divide. You have a political discourse that's frozen. You, you know, you have all these conditions that, that were, were inherent in the Reconstruction movement. And essentially, I think that Reconstruction failed mostly because the, the, the political north decided that was enough. Time to move on. Let's build that railroad across the country. So all these incredible landmark decisions around uh, civil rights were on paper only. But, you know, Jim Crow has lasted or lasted certainly 100-plus years after Appomattox. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, so I, I make that case because I think it's, it's true that, 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 that a lot of what Reconstruction revealed as far as how deeply divided we were probably since the founding of the of the nation you know when you think about how the the southern colonies basically said if we if you don't take out those that language about slavery in uh, i guess it was i don't know if it was the declaration or the constitution we're walking there's not going to be any fight with the, the king you know so that you know from that day on you know there was always a lever i think that unfortunately you know that legacy still still exists except now i think it's much more rooted in uh, the income inequality of corporations just not being willing to uh, figure out how to spread their wealth more equitably. Well, that, how do you take that on, though? I mean, if you if we're, if we're talking about the first step of empathy and, and getting a problem out into the open, how do you take that on? Because I mean, I, I, I absolutely acknowledge your points and I think that they're valid. But how do you how do you get people to understand that, especially at this moment in history where there's such not only a political divide, but even a we can't agree on the facts. And, and facts are in dispute, which is which is mind-boggling on on a couple of levels. I mean, you, you're talking with people who, in a phrase that I kind of coined, is you know, you talk to them and tell them X, and they tell you, well, no, Y is actually true. You know, X is not the real answer because I don't believe it. You know, it's not true because I don't believe it. You know, and I don't believe it because it doesn't make sense in my world. How do you take that on? Well, you know, certainly education, certainly creating a new context to frame discussion around uh, the events of the, uh, the country went through, uh, having a new read on our history. Uh, you know, if you don't know where you've been, you sure as hell aren't going to figure out where you're going. If you have a sort of a blind spot to the, the legacy of, of our history, you're going to repeat the same stuff and the same structural conflicts are going to remain and probably even get worse. So I think it does start in the classroom, and, and it starts with each individual family, you know, learning how to read more and, and understand, however they can, what the context for all these issues are. Now, that sounds pretty, I don't know, I suppose it sounds a bit uh, like who's got the time to do that, but, you know, my answer is, well, if you don't put the time into figuring out where we've been, you're going to be lost trying to figure out how to go forward, and I think that's showing up very clearly. There's no sense of, you know, I don't get a, a strong sense that people have, have figured out what our direction is. The haves, it seems, that the haves are so scared about losing what they have that they don't want to share it with the have-nots. But it's not even about sharing with the have-nots. It's about everyone getting some pie, not me getting a slice and you not getting any, or you getting a smaller well, slice. Well, for somebody, somebody else to get a slice of the pie, somebody's got to give up their part of their slice, right? Well, not necessarily. I think that's the way, I mean, Antonio mentioned it earlier, I think that's the way that the capitalists have kind of framed the argument, um, when it's really not so. I mean, I think that education is, is perhaps 
the biggest key here. And again, you know, I'm relying on, on, on what I've learned over the course of a couple of years is that the biggest problem with, with Antonio's approach in getting people to understand history is we cannot agree on history. Again, the facts are in dispute, even though they are facts. There are textbook discussions in Texas about whether or not to call Mexican uh, freedom fighters marauders. There are discussions about whether or not the slavery chapter should be included. There are discussions about Black History what Month. Call, what whether do they or call not them? Should... For, forced, forced immigrants or something like that? Forced immigrants. You know, immigrants. Yeah, yeah. forced <laughs> immigration. I mean, dance, dance. You know, uh, yeah. Right. And, and it comes back to the point that history is, history is written by the winners. And if we can't have an agreement on what the common history is, it seems incredibly frustrating to try to talk to people about what a view of history is or an objective view of history is. But the one thing I do kind of, kind of am hopeful about is the fact that the dispute, you know, out of, out of these kinds of disputes, we get a sense of common purpose, or hopefully there will be a sense of common purpose where we can understand that we all have to move in the same direction. I mean, talk about Pollyanna. I mean, I sound like, you know, <laughs> President Obama and that was, you know, but, but I, I, I I, I, I'm hopeful and I worry at the same time. I'm, I'm, I worry about the fact that schools are so unequally funded and that we can't have a discussion about facts and that some rural schools get less than some urban schools and they both get less than suburban schools and that wealth keeps pushing upward and upward and those who have will give to their children. And that will create an unequal society and a lot of conflict. I'm optimistic however, in the fact that there are, there are people who do care deeply about this country. As it stands, I'm, I'm sitting in hearings from Judge Gorsuch. You know, he is talking in a way that seems to make sense to a lot of other people. There are some who may agree, but there are people who do want the best for the country, speaking against him and for him. So there still is, as long as we care and as long as we're still talking, that's a very good sign to me. That brings up uh, the next point that I was going to talk about, which is leadership. In, in this article that you wrote, Joe, the second half of that paragraph was, meanwhile, nearly half think the era of Beyonce, Islamic State Group, and Black Lives Matter is so bad the country needs an authoritarian leader who is willing to break some rules in order to set things right. That's a big, that's a big net. I mean, you can break a lot of things. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't involve breaking public education, which I think, you know, I don't know if that's their stated goal or they're just doing it kind of under the under the radar, but my sense is that, you know, talking about education as being probably the toughest and longest road, but pr probably the most productive road to hoe as it relates to bringing up awareness of, of the context in which all these events are playing out. If you, if you look at that agenda, that to me is truly one of the, one of the most frightening pieces of all of it because you're you're getting children at a very very young age to start to buy into whatever you want to call it propaganda or just a way of teaching that that screens out unpleasant truth just as a as a as a matter as a definition you know you start to narrow the band of what they're exposed to you start you know, you know restricting the kind of books they can read and then it just leads, you know, it, you just go down the rabbit hole of entrenching that ignorance even even deeper. So it's very scary. It seems to me that we're going down that road of authoritarian leadership. Well, you only need to look at the, the results of the last election and what's happened since our new president has taken office. He's very much ruled with a very – or a team, a, attempted to got the country with a very firm hand. I mean, you may not agree with any or every or anything that he's doing, but he certainly is projecting that image of, of strength. And I find it ironic that 
the country went overwhelmingly for the strongman, or not overwhelmingly, but certainly the country went for a strongman type of leader after having an elite, what many people would call the, the very definition of an elitist leader, Barack Obama, a guy who was very cerebral and very intellectual and, you know, had that kind of air of, of thought over gut reaction. Is it a good choice? Well, time will tell. I mean, many of us would think that it isn't, but we have to see whether the, how resilient the institutions are and what comes next. So I think it's very clear that the sentiments expressed in that survey were spot on. What do you think the instinct is when people need a strong man? You know, you need, you know, the, the factors drive that urge, that impulse are fundamental disruption, uh, fundamental sense of inequality, uh, you know, just disenfranchisement. I mean, Trump said two things that actually rang very true to me. Um, one was the game is rigged, and then he went out to set, then he set out to show just how rigged it is by being, you know, the champ rigged game. And then he also said, well, I think it had to do with torture. He said, well, makes, what, what makes us think we're any different than any other country when it comes to, you know, pulling out the stops to, to stop a threat? His instinct was to sort of, to try to paint a different picture. But, you know, you look at the things he's promising and what he's walked back on in two months, it's kind of staggering that the strong man is more like a straw man at this point. I mean, he's he's just backing off a lot of a lot of the things that he said he was going to do, and because it just either he's discovered that you just can't do it in 60 days, or or politically there's no gain in there, or who knows what. I I think that focusing on him though is really, in, in some ways, beside the point. I mean, and this is much more nuts and bolts, community building, one-on-one kind of personal interactions between people, trying you know deciding that they can't wait for somebody else to solve the problem. They're going to have to figure out how to to do something for themselves, whether it's organize or get involved with school board, whatever it is that they're not, they haven't done so far, it's going to, and maybe all of this is just about breaking through that inertia, you know, that the country has essentially lived off of, uh, you know, I won't say a free lunch, but I think that it's had, it's not been challenged as a country, you know, or, you know, when you think about what it means to be a citizen of this country, you know, there's no military service. A lot of countries, you know, they put their young people to work doing real-life stuff. And there's a very good reason for it. As an educational experience, there's nothing better than experiential learning. It also forces them to have some skin in the game, right? Right. My dad right. served in the military, and so I kind of get that. I understand the culture. And I understand what it means to have that kind of, of pride almost in wearing a uniform and and understand that you are making a sacrifice for your country. I mean, it could be as small as, you know, guarding an outpost somewhere, or it could be as major as being engaged in combat. But those sorts of programs, mandatory military service, at the very least, you get an experience that you share with other people. In other words, you're part of a unit, and the unit is part of a company, the company is part of a brigade, the brigade is part of the military that is protecting said country. Right, and you're serving alongside your countrymen, which tends to build stronger bonds. That's one of the reasons why military folks feel way more patriotic than the rest of us. And it's a shared and discipline, sacrifice. right? And discipline, discipline. exactly. Oh. And it's a shared vision too. Right. We all know. We all know that this country is heading in this direction. We all know we have a we have a purpose. You know, and our purpose is to guard the nation. So I and it think doesn't even. Also, by the way, it, it doesn't have to be just military. It, it could be civilian. You know, this is. A, you know, FDR, exactly. you know, put millions of people on to work fixing roads and bridges, and people were just 
elated to have a pickaxe in their hands as opposed to selling apples on the street. I mean, they just it was they, they just good honest they work at a enough. fair wage. Right. Yes, exactly, exactly. Good honest work at a fair wage. Um, and I also think that uh, we are breaking through, and that's one of the hopeful signs that I have, you know, out of all this chaos, is that people are organizing. How many people were in D.C. that that weekend? Five hundred thousand, you know, seven hundred fifty thousand for the for the for the pink hat march and all across the nation. People were getting organized and realizing that they've got to get engaged. We have people talking about wealth and inequality for the first time in a substantive way. Uh, it's not just a theory. It's it's actually out there, and people are actually talking about it. So that, I think, is also positive. I think that young people are, are, are starting to engage, even if it's to oppose something, right? A lot of times we, we get engaged in an issue because we don't like the way X or Y is going, not because the other thing is going so well. We, we, we need to get engaged, we get involved, and things change. So I think change may be in the air, but it might be one of these times of agonizing reappraisal where yeah. things are going to get worse before they get better. Also, I think that we have to understand that as the way history moves, it doesn't move fast. So the things that – and we are a society that is so used to instant gratification. You know, the remote can press a button, the remote control goes on. Press a button – your food is cooked. You know, all of these devices which are, are built to, uh, that were created to create convenience had the unfortunate effect of dumbing down and giving people a false sense of how life really works. It takes time. Everything we're talking about in this conversation, I don't know whether, you know, we're going to be alive to see some of the fruits of, of what we, of what we would like to see happen. My guess is that a lot of this is going to be, gener- you know, several generations if the momentum continues. But it, but it does have to start somewhere. I was thinking about this whole idea of the military and the draft, and I have to cop to the fact that, you know, I'm a child of the 60s, and, you know, I we had a draft for an incredibly unpopular war. And that, I think, put the kibosh to some degree on the whole notion of military mandatory mandatory military service because people were just petrified that they're going to you know their sons and daughters are going to be sent off on on the wrong war yet again and that kind of misses the point of of uh, military service as a as something you give back to your country as part of being a citizen of it and that is i mean to your point uh Antonio about military service in the draft i mean it has to be applied equally uh, throughout history, rich folks have been able to avoid military service. You mentioned Reconstruction. One of the problems during the Civil War was the draft riots in New York City where uh, the Irish immigrants felt like the uh, dandy boys were able to buy their way out. Uh, it's a good concept. It's a great idea. Service is important. Make sure it's equitable. Right. We've been asking all of the guests on this series uh, one final question. I'd like to ask uh, you both this question. Is there a reason to hope that we will ultimately come together before our country is destroyed? What do you think, Joe? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Saving the best for last. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I, 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 I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of a weirdo optimist because I think, yes, we will come together before the country is destroyed because the stakes are way too high and people are now starting to get engaged. I agree with that. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I see – history always in a certain light, but I think that the impulse is always to find connection. That's just a human impulse. The desire, you know, the need to be divided is not. And, you know, isolation is not essentially a state of being that people like. So I I am also optimistic. 
But I think it's going to be a long, hard road, and we have to be prepared for pain. Yeah, pain was, as you read my mind, pain was the word that I was going to use in that situation, absolutely. We are out of time, and I'd like to thank both of my guests today. This has been a great conversation. Antonio Almali, the author of The Ones They Left Behind, and Joe Williams, senior news editor with U.S. News. If you haven't read any of Joe's articles, I strongly suggest you find them online and read them. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Antonio, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for having me on. And Joe Williams, I appreciate your time. This was great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I appreciate it. It was a, it was a pleasure to join you. We would like to thank you for joining us today on the Literary Roundtable, and we hope that you will join us again soon. Be sure to check out our website at literaryroundtable.com, where you can find out about all of our guests that will be joining us in the future. If you would like to submit questions for any of our guests, you can tweet us at at literaryrt, or you can email us your questions to lrtquestions at gmail.com. I'm your host, Joe Marsh, and I hope you will pull up a chair and join us for our next Literary Roundtable, where you are always welcome. Provided by Jazar and David Zeste.